Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Kirsty Major, Commissioning Editor at The Independent, and this is Double Take, a podcast in which our writers come into the studio to read and discuss one of their opinion pieces. It could be their weekly column or something from the archives that shines some light on this week's news. This week, I'm joined by Ash Sarkar, Senior Editor at Navarra Media, who will be reading and discussing her piece, The Working Class Isn't As White As Some Would Like You To Think. So much for the sans-culotte of the deindustrialized Rust Belt. When the citizenry of Trump's forgotten America showed up in Charlottesville, it was in sports jackets and chinos. This was not the culture war the commentariat had prepared us for. Rather than Arlie Hochschild's blue-collar Joe consigned to the scrap heap by globalisation, or indeed Joan Williams's ordinary working stiff beset by cultural and economic anxiety, the ruddy faces of Unite the Right looked positively bougie. It's become a truism repeated to the point of banality, that across the global north, a revival of working-class political engagement has driven electoral successes for the nationalist right. Dispossessed by globalist elites and mocked by a cosmopolitan intelligentsia, this demographic has been long underserved by our political classes and neglected by the identitarian gatekeepers of cultural relevance. Better writers than myself have debunked much of this narrative. In the UK, as well as the US, the economically downtrodden are not racially homogenous. What's more, the existence of racial inequality makes itself known in economic outcomes. Black and Asian minority ethnic households in the UK are twice as likely as their white counterparts to be amongst those hardest hit by austerity. And black and Asian minority ethnic workers are overrepresented in insecure and low paid forms of employment. Between 2010 and 2015, long-term youth unemployment fell by 2% for white people. In the same time period, it rose by 50% for black and Asian minority ethnic youth. As Maya Goodfellow observed, the media fixation on the white working class is not only misleading, it is an example of the very identity politics it claims to deride. We find ourselves in a landscape where, in Owen Hatherley's words, class is depoliticised framed as a sort of nationality based on accent, culture and a particular set of views rather than an economic relation. This has not always been the case in the UK. While cultural anxieties regarding race and immigration have plagued the British political imaginary since the days of empire, left-wing and anti-racist movements of the 1970s and 1980s suggested a different basis for understanding inequality. The Grunwick strike of 1976 saw 137 predominantly Asian and female striking workers joined by 20,000 protesters, with Arthur Scargill and striking, mostly white and male, miners backing their dispute. Working-class Londoners of colour set up monitoring shops in every borough in response to far-right and police violence. Organisations such as Black People Against State Harassment, BASH, were set up as community self-defence initiatives, and while it wasn't without its internal divisions and problems, there was a lively and populist anti-racist movement in the UK. 
The breaking of the miners' strike in 1985 and the anti-trade union crusade that followed has long been held as the demise of working-class political organisation in the UK. Arguably just as important is the response of Thatcher's government to the riots of 1981 and 1985. After decades of police harassment under racist sus powers, an informal name for a stop and search law, managed decline of urban centres and high profile instances of deaths following police contact, tensions twice boiled over into outbreaks of mass disorder across the UK as working class people of colour took to the streets. Thatcher had previously been to the right of the Conservative Party on issues of race and immigration. Following the Brixton riots, however, her government set about implementing the findings of the Scarman Report, which recommended nationwide funding of cultural projects to include ethnic minority communities in a sense of national belonging. The urban programme's budget blossomed to £270 million, and 200 new ethnic projects were approved between 1982 and 1983. Such ethnic projects did little to mitigate the rampant inequalities in housing, employment and healthcare, which grew under Thatcher's neoliberal agenda. State multiculturalism was a programme to constrain the political effectiveness of anti-racist and industrial movements. The watchword of the day became representation rather than wealth redistribution. By focusing on race relations, Thatcher turned a project of anti-racist socio-economic justice into one of ethnic representation and the working class was split along racialized lines. The contradictions of the multicultural project continued under Tony Blair. While the 1997 government were hailed as diverse modernizers, income inequalities and associated racialized outcomes widened under new labor. The 1999 McPherson report's identification of institutional racism in the Metropolitan Police and the protection of minority rights by the Race Relations Act 2000 made it seem like Blair's brand of cosmopolitan social democracy was a victory for anti-racist organisers of the 1980s. However, in 2003, Home Secretary David Blunkett dismissed institutional racism as a mere slogan which missed the point. Immigration enforcement officers were made exempt from the Race Relations Act, which called open season on state harassment of non-EU migrants. Having separated out black and Asian minority ethnic communities from the national conception of class, Blair's agenda began to exclude working class migrants too. As the BNP made electoral inroads in the white flight ring around London, New Labour became intent on being seen as just as hard on asylum seekers as their far-right competitors in order to preserve community cohesion. However, as Aaron Kunani has noted in The End of Tolerance, the case for being tough on immigration was as much about capital as it was about culture. Under New Labour, the number of successfully granted asylum applications halved in the space of two years. In the same time period, the number of temporary work visas doubled, creating a precarious, hyper-exploitable, racialised working class. These workers are the forgotten forgotten, the most vulnerable amongst a working class that was never as white as we'd like to imagine it. Who are the white working class? If anything, they're just as much a product of state multiculturalism as the diversity czars decried in the pages of right-wing tabloids. A cultural analysis, with its attendant vocabulary of identity, community and belonging, fails to tackle the very real material inequalities that continue to widen in our society and disproportionately impact people of colour. It would be a mistake for Corbyn's Labour Party to hark back to a socialism which assumes racial homogeneity, or to continue the discourse of an authentocracy in which class is just a set of cultural distinctions. 
The disintegration of neoliberal consensus across the global north presents us with an opportunity for renewed politics of social and economic justice. Projects of wealth redistribution are nothing without an anti-racist backbone. It's the alt-right who want a culture war. The rest of us are just after a decent living. If you would like to have your say on the piece, you can tweet Ash at AOCZEC and me at Kirsty underscore Major. Up next, we'll be talking about what actually constitutes class in the UK. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hi, Ash. Hey, Kirsty. So when we commissioned this piece from you, you told me a little story that one of the monitoring shops that you mentioned in your piece, your mum and dad met at one of them. Yeah, so clearly they had that eye on something other than police violence. I don't know if it undermines their activism, but yeah, they met doing um, new monitoring project, which is one of the few monitoring projects which still exists to this day. So do you feel like when people talk about working class in the UK, that part of your own family history and indeed your own history gets a raise when people talk about it just in terms of whiteness? Completely. Um, not just in terms of race, but also gender. So particularly in critical race circles or in um, histories um, or in British historical circles, we talk about the fact that waves of migration um, occurred post-World War II to fill certain labour shortages. And when we imagine those labour shortages, we gender that work as predominantly male. Mm-hmm. So we think about things like bus conductors or we think about um, factory work. What we don't talk about is the situation that my grandmother found herself in. She was 17. She came to this country in 1954, I think it was. She moved just onto um, North Road near Caledonian Road. Mm-hmm. And she was working as a care worker, which was another labour shortage. So you know, this kind of newly created NHS and care system needed predominantly, you know, black and brown, predominantly female workers to come and staff it. So one of the things I'm trying to get at in this article is that we suffer from a selective cultural memory in which we racialize the working class as white. And when we don't, it's predominantly male. Do you think that that's done purposefully? So when you talk about Thatcher and you talk about Blair, do you feel like that was, you know, set out as an agenda or do you think it was the result of, you know, implicit biases within policymaking? The breakup of the working class into discrete ethnic and cultural communities was a 
concerted project. It didn't happen overnight and it didn't happen by accident. You read interviews with not just UK Home Secretaries, but also, say, Reagan's Secretary of State. These projects of funding, which also went hand in hand with the over-policing of certain communities, was intended to break up black socialist radicalism on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, so you think about what happened at the end of the black power movement. You had the most um, senior organizing figures incarcerated or indeed murdered by the state. And then others were kind of ossified in you know, the bureaucracy or in the state apparatus itself. And I think you find the same over here. So you had very prominent members repeatedly harassed by the police or um, attacked violently by police in terms of um, black anti-racist organizing from the 1970s onwards. And then those that didn't were kind of softened by just enough money to achieve projects of representation, but that um, significantly moderated the message of redistribution. Do you think it was also as well as being at the policy level, do you think there's a cultural level where, I don't know, film, TV, British culture overemphasized and overrepresented the white working class? So I'm thinking, uh, you know, your Only Fools and Horses and your Steptoe and Sons and maybe books like uh, Don't Look Back in Anger mm -hmm. um, versus books like Lonely Londoners by mm. Sam Selvin. Like, I feel like one part of that canon gets overrepresented than the other. Do you agree? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I think The Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvin is a great example of this. If li listeners haven't read it, it's just one of the most beautiful books. It's perfect. Um, and I think it's one of the best accounts of living poor in London that I've ever read. And it's just as relevant today um, as it was at, uh, when it was published. I'm not thinking so much about the kitchen sink tradition of um, UK fiction and drama. I love that kind of stuff myself. Because it's very dangerous to start saying, well, just because the white working class is a sociological construct, it means that white working class households, individuals and neighborhoods don't exist. They very much do. And that representation is important. But you look at the cultural moment of the early 2000s. And do you remember the BBC had the white season? No. So it was a, a series of films and programs, uh, mostly one offs, which are about white people white working class mm -hmm. people i remember watching one which i thought was um a load of rubbish to be honest where a white girl converts to islam and everyone loses their mind um so these projects are very well funded and very um uh politically effective when you consider at what po at what point in british political history is this um coming out so the bbc's white season is kind of at the Blair Project Zenith in terms of, you know, increasing public-private finance initiatives, in terms of widening inequalities, in terms of um, getting a never-ending war on terror started both domestically and abroad. Um, so it's not just about saying like, oh, Ken Loach, can you not? Because, you know, love my man, Ken. But looking at how, uh, again, coming back to policy and funding, how and when these things come about. I wonder also we can talk about as well as it being at the policy level and the cultural level in terms of the right. So like Thatcher and Reagan over in the US and the center with Blair, but also identity over material concerns. And when I say material concerns, I mean like, you know, your economics, your bread and butter, what's going in and out of your bank account. Um, the left are also really keen on identity. So I feel like it's a conversation which is sort of like, I think you you described it as like the register of the individual, like only talking about politics 
from an individual perspective rather than a structural perspective. Why do you think that has, has come about? I mean, this is where we as anti-racists really have to hold our hands up and say, look, we have been just as affected by neoliberal hegemony as the center has or the white left or the right has. Um, I think there's a reason why when we talk about intersectionality, it's not in the way that Kimberly Crenshaw had intended it to be. We start looking at it as a kind of oppression Olympics where you kind of stack up these subject positions and um, from that you assume greater authority to speak on things. That's not what Kimberly Crenshaw in intended So for listeners who maybe haven't read up on what intersectionality is can you kind of explain what it is and what it was supposed to be for Kimberly Crenshaw intersectionality is a way of explaining the politicized experience of black women in America so you're not just a woman and your political heritage isn't just the feminine mystique until now it's saying that this um there's a intellectual history which kind of goes from uh women who are organizing against slavery right through to the kind of 1970s womanist movement and that there are very particular social economic and historical forces shaping your experience so it's not primarily a matter of identity at all it's looking at how power dynamics shape positions of vulnerability so you're not just a woman you're a black woman or you're a black disabled woman or you're a black queer woman um that has sometimes been interpreted as something which is intensely atomizing so intersections you start thinking about the point of the crossroads rather than the roads and where they've come from and where they're going and why do you think it's become such a useful shorthand for people also on the left because you have so there's a book right now maybe not a lot of people have read it but it's it's definitely taken twitter over at the moment called kill all normies by angela mm. nagel and she critiques both the left and the right for her and for being you know too extreme online mm -hmm. and she critiques the left for take an identity to its and the sort of like absurd zenith where people identify as um i don't know pieces of cutlery i think <laughs> is her is her great example um, i mean that that's a much critiqued argument but i think what she picks up on is this trend within the left to use identity as a shorthand to talk about oppression but wh why where did that come from at what point did people pick that up and not critique it as something that actually maybe isn't a helpful term Again, I think we have to look at the impact of neoliberalism. So why is it that intersectionality, which I do think is a very useful um, analytic tool, and more importantly, it's a very useful social tool. So when you're in an organizing space, and I don't know what it's like to be a trans woman of color, but I've got an understanding that a trans woman is vulnerable in very specific ways and this is a way of opening up that conversation where they can tell me about their experience and tell me what's needed in terms of solidarity i think that's great but one of the most dangerous things in politics is stasis and complacency so let's not act as though um an understanding of oppression stops with kimberly crenshaw in terms of why it's been so uh popularized and indeed vulgarized right what nagel is critiquing is a very vulgar form of mm -hmm. intersectionality which is just as bad as the vulgar marxism which says that the working the working class is white owns a whippet and works in the factory um the reason behind this and there's something which nagel doesn't look at which i think is a crying shame is the impact of neoliberalism on social movements you look at the 1960s and 70s as an incomplete revolution why is it that we are happy to talk about something which looks at us as, you know, hyper-isolated, atomized individuals, but not, say, the intellectual work of Angela Davis, who was also writing about race, class, and gender. And one of her critiques of intersectionality was that you cannot simply look at um, race, gender, class 
when you're looking at the obverse of positions of power, right? So that these things only come into being when you're talking about, you know, black working class women, for instance. If you're talking about a white moneyed man, Angela Davis would say, well, aren't you always talking about histories of racism then? You know, you have to look at these things in a much more uh, bundled up and, you know, epistemically messy way in order to come to any understanding. And also you need one which is thoroughly grounded in a materialist analysis, one that looks at what's coming in and out of your bank account, um, as you put it, or indeed um, how the bank itself was founded um, in order to get anywhere at all. So one of those analyses is a lot more dangerous when it comes to the project of, I don't know, overthrowing capitalism than one which kind of treats you as a... Um, isolated, you know, piece of social debris floating around, um, feeling injured. If you could conceive then of a definition of class that you'd find most useful in the UK for people to come together and begin to fight the finite, like the, you know, the economic in inequality that we're all facing right now, what would that look like? Right. Are you in charge of how you make your money? No. <laughs> then you're probably working class. For me, it comes down to, I mean, again, outing myself as maybe a vulgar Marxist here, class is a property relation. So if you're part of a renter class, right, rather than a property owning class, um, whether you're, you're part of a class which uh, has unsustainable levels of debt, if you're in a precariously employed class, so maybe you have three part-time jobs, two of which are on zeros hours, you're working class, again, Owen Hadley, I think, puts it very well, which is we have come to imagine class set of cultural distinctions, which is why you can have some ridiculous figure like Owen Smith getting in a flap that his coffee wasn't served in a mug and it was in a nice little latte thing because it's just this completely shallow, you know, analysis of like accoutrements and um, accessories. When you actually look at class in terms of money and then you look at how class is racialized in terms of who is more likely to have less money, so you look at the um, racialized differential in terms of assets, right? Average household assets. It's a hugely racialized dynamic there. That's class. Um, for me, it comes down to something really simple, which is what do you own and how do you make your peas? Well, thank you for joining us. And then everyone can add that definition of class now to the canon. <laughs> I mean, I just read capital, innit? Like, <laughs> it just sort of end up saying to people like, oh, just read capital, man. Just even on Wikipedia. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. We're having a little break for the next two weeks, but we'll be back on Thursday, 21st of September. Special thanks to Helen Hodnot who produced this episode. I'm Cassie Major. See you in two weeks. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.